Welcome to Now with Steve Rio. On this podcast, I seek to define what it means to live a good life. How do we stay connected and aligned with our values and our purpose? How do we prioritize what's most important to us? And how do we optimize and make the most of the time we have in this life? Today's conversation is with Mike Rollins. Mike is the president and CEO of Junction Strategy. He's the board chair at Hollyhock and a director at the Social Venture Circle. He's also a father of two, a husband, and an incredible contributor to his community. This conversation is really poignant given everything that's going on in the world with this virus and everything else. We talked about Mike's experience going through two recessions, one after the dot-com boom in 9-11, the other in 2008-2009. Both brought learning and perspective and changed the way Mike thought about business and creating value in his life. We talked about climate change and what leadership needs to look like in the next decade. And we ended the conversation with an interesting dialogue around spirituality and staying grounded as a leader in these tumultuous times. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you do, make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. And if you could take one extra minute and rate and review this podcast, that would be incredible. You can follow me on Instagram at Steve Rio. And if you're interested in learning how to increase your performance, resilience, and well-being, check out Nature of Work. It's a personal operating system to help you live life to its fullest. You can find us online at natureofwork.co. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. ...that need to be put in place. Yeah. And we're not doing that work. Right. Interesting. Or at least we're not doing it fast enough. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me over. Yeah, thanks for being here. <laughs> um, so we already started talking. I, we, Mike and I just went for a walk, and I wanted to press record about 40 minutes ago, but we'll, we'll just start now again. So it goes, yeah. Um, maybe we can start with, um, I read your LinkedIn bio. You're doing a lot of things. We'll talk about some of those things. But um, how would you describe yourself that isn't on your corporate bio? Who is Mike outside of the corporate bio. Is there a difference? There is, but it's complimentary. Um, father and husband don't make the top of my LinkedIn bio, though they could. Maybe they should. Um, but if you ask me who I am, the first thing I go to is my wife and my two kids. Mm-hmm. Um, those are fundamentally the most important expression in my life and the most important relationships in my life. And so anytime I'm asked who I am, I go first to those relationships. All right. So that's, that's the first piece. I think the other thing that you don't really see unless you dig and discern through my bio is the um, the philosopher in me. Right. Right. You read it closely enough and you'll see that I have an undergraduate degree in philosophy and political science, and that definitely informs my work for a bunch of organizations. Uh, but more and more as I get older, I'm just sort of embracing that philosopher piece. What are good ideas? What is a good life? What is a good business? What's a healthy business? How does one correctly blend life and work? Or should one keep them separate? 
Um, what does a work-life balance look like? Is work-life integration smarter? Mm-hmm. These are all ideas that I'm kind of keen and interested to play with and just observe how different people answer those for themselves. Yeah. Um, so I try to bring that really thoughtful philosopher mindset to a lot of the work that I do and a lot of how I show up. Interesting. I think a lot about philosophy of life these days, largely because I think we don't necessarily have much of that going on as part of a mainstream conversation. I think religion has been fading, mm-hmm. especially in where we live in the Western world, has been fading dramatically, which was a philosophy of life. And you look back, there was things like Stoicism or other, you know, the Roman era or Greek era, those lots of schools of philosophy you could subscribe to that really were Absolutely. more, that were very clear about how to live. And these days we don't really have much of that. Do you, do you have a, descri- do you have a defined philosophy of life or is it from different existing pieces or? Yeah, I think my, my philosophy of life is pretty eclectic. Like I'm, I'm interested in a lot of traditions and I've pulled practices from a lot of different traditions. But I think your observation that, uh, that, that sort of living life in a, in a philosophically good way has faded from our consciousness in the West. Um, I think we've substituted faith traditions and we've substituted community living out Mm -hmm. in favor of a more transactional set of pursuits, right? So as faith traditions have have waned in a lot of Western thinking and and popular culture, consumerism has risen. Um, Brands are the new tribes. Yeah. Yeah. People associate much more quickly with an Apple computer than they do with Islam or Buddhism or some of these other traditions that have nurtured societies for centuries. Right? Mm-hmm. I think there's something about this technologically driven moment that we're in as well. I saw a really amazing presentation a couple of years ago by Van Jones, who was the green job czar under Obama's first term. And he talked about life in the agrarian era being like a circle, like a cycle, um, because the seasons followed and because the planting and the harvesting was followed and communities organized around that cycle. And then in the industrial era, um, his metaphor was um, life became more like a line. Right. And we could stand in the present uh, very much with our backs to the past, which is you know a natural implication of the metaphor when you're looking one way down a line. But there's also something really deep to that. Like we just forget about past. It's too easy to ignore tradition because we're focused on the future and where we're going. And we can plan for it and we can see it and we can sort of walk together into the future. And now we're in this sort of post-industrial knowledge economy age, um, and it's still like a line, but the future is coming at us, and it's coming at us faster and faster as life accelerates and technology accelerates life. Uh, and now what's uh, now we're sort of forced to respond, right? And mm-hmm. agility is highly valued, and resilience is highly valued. And those were not words that we were using 20 years ago during industrial development. Um, and I think that that sort of resilience at best, responsiveness, reactiveness at worst, when we're not so well-equipped, um, really gives shape to a lot of the way that we live our lives now and the way we lead organizations and, frankly, the way we think and just behave. Mm-hmm. Like if we're always in this reactive mode, just trying to keep up, how are we ever going to live in a, as our best selves? How are we going to hold to higher standards? How are we going to take the time to think about what the ethical choice is if we're just forced into reaction? Yeah. Is literally why I have been working on nature of work. It's, it, it, I call it a personal operating system, but it's a philosophy right. of life. Except it's very much it's focused in on the work side of things, but it also translates into how we live our life, so that we can be less reactionary to all the things coming at us. We can we can get grounded enough to make clear decisions about how we want to live before those things come at us. It's just 
classic mindfulness as well, which is just creating space between the stimulus and the response. Yeah. Because I see a lot of really smart people feeling completely overwhelmed and unable to think these days. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's interesting going back to those faith traditions, these are these are um, these are lessons that we've learned before, right? These aren't new just because things are moving faster. Like Plato was wrestling with how do we behave when we can only see what's directly in front of us and how do we take a step back and think about the broader picture of all that's going on around us and then behave responsibly. Yeah, you read all the Stoicism stuff and it is so applicable to right now. Absolutely. I mean, it sounds like it could have been written by Tim Ferriss or something. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like more and more interested in ancient wisdom, and indigenous wisdom and the learnings of philosophers that were writing hundreds or thousands of years ago. And what do they have to say that's applicable to current challenges? And there's just, there's so much depth and there's so much that we've just forgotten because we're so excited about the next Facebook post or the next news headline or the next cool piece of technology that's coming at us. Yeah. I think a big transition in my life over the last five years is being going from a, a tech evangelist just purely to... I don't know, a tech skeptic, uh, maybe, right. um, where I see the advantage of technology, but it, to your point, you just said like it's coming at us now and we're just reacting to it. These are things that we are making, but it seems like the way the financial structures are built and the way, you know, the way that business runs, they become these ego monsters that are just, op- it's like, it's like no one's in control of them. Right. We're all beholden to them, yet we started all these systems. Yeah. And we are working in these systems and we are profiting and making, you know, all that from these systems and from these companies. Yet we are now, saying, what are we going to do about this when it happens as if it's somebody else doing it? Right. It's super interesting. We're all right part now. of it. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I've always admired about you with technology as an evangelist, my sense was you were always looking for the next cool tool, mm. but you're quite judicious about how you use them. Right. So you, it was always a technology in service to a business goal or an organizational goal. Um, and you were just as comfortable shedding a tool that no longer served as you were adopting a new one. Um, and a lot of us sort of observed the tools that you were using and how are you using them and then mimicked it like 12 months after you'd picked them up. Right. right. So you were sort of leading that conversation. And I think the conversation now, when you say you're sort of evolving into sort of skepticism, is you've shifted from what's the right tool to do I need the tools at all, mm-hmm. right? So there's a there's a whole meta conversation that you're stepping into um, that I think is where I'm trying to shift as well. It's like getting out of the intra-organizational and up to the more systemic view. Right. Right. So it may be that these tools help me accomplish a tactical goal in the short term, but what are they doing strategically over the long term? And how does that play out for us as individuals? How does that play up, out for the organizations that we lead? And how is that playing out for society? Yeah, because to me, one of the biggest things that all this technology is doing is weakening and 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 stripping us of our natural intelligence. Right. Of I talk about the the mind and the body, and when you connect, when you get grounded and you connect with your body, you inherently know what's right and wrong. You inherently know what you want and don't want. You just it's easy to make good decisions. Yeah. But when you're when you let technology tell you if you're sleeping well and if you've had enough steps or if what you should be eating and you're tracking everything and technology is giving you a thumbs up or a thumbs down, you stop listening to your body. Right. And, and we're, we're as I, I don't know if there's any way to measure this or if anybody is, but it strikes me that we are getting less intelligent on a macro level right now. 
So I, that's fascinating because I think like if you use the te- use technology as metaphor, mm-hmm. the greatest technology is the human body. Absolutely, the brain like is the most complicated, extraordinary, most exquisite thing in the on the planet right, right. now. Yeah, and there is no computer that humans have developed on the planet that comes close to the storage capacity, the processing capacity, at the resilience of the human brain. So from that standpoint, we've got the greatest possible technology inside us from birth. Why are we like defaulting to the latest watch and biorhythm indicator? That's exactly. crazy. Yeah. I've been, that's a piece that I've been working on this year and thinking about a lot for probably the last two or three years is that um, the somatic experience, right? The bodily understanding um, rather than processing with intellect and brain, uh, processing with like listening to what the body's telling us and the feedback that we get, right? People talk about gut instinct. Well, it's, that's actually my stomach listening and understanding a situation faster than my mind can process it. 100%. And there's a huge neural network in your gut. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing, which is new learning. Yeah. Right? I did Vipassana earlier this year. Uh, have you? Do you have any experience with it at all? I don't. No. But it it's um, it's really just a, at the root of it is a, a body scanning technique. So you're, you're basically sitting in meditation in deep focus and you're scanning every inch of your body and you get more and more focused into the point where you can literally, at one point I could almost see in my organs, like I could just Mm. feel, and this is during my 10 day meditation and probably the best, deepest moment I got to for one second or whatever was this moment where I could actually feel everything in your body. But the underlying idea there is that all of our emotions start as sensations in the body. So when we get angry or we get upset or we get whatever, our body temperature changes or we start to sweat or we tremble a little bit or we our breath changes or our heart rate goes up, if we actually just feeling for them, we can address the fact that, oh, yep, I'm I'm elevated right now. Right. And you can and then you actually have a choice to whether you respond to that as as well. Right. So, so then you also separate your intellectual response from that rate from that from that feeling. Right. Um but also that there's just an incredible amount of uh memory and energy stored in our muscles. So what was interesting for me during the meditation for days was that all these old memories were coming up that I forgot, things that I forgot had ever happened, Mm -hmm. like lots of stuff, just from sitting and observing my body. And what happened during that time is my hips loosened up for the first time in my adult life. My back, I could sit cross-legged for an hour, which Mm. was not a possibility for me before. All these things shifted, like my whole body, my the kinks in my neck were gone after 10 days of sitting. Now they're back, <laughs> that I'm back in a regular flow. But it's just yeah. amazing, the somatic experience of just sitting and observing the body. Taking the time, taking the space, just sit in yeah. your body. Which right? was an excruciating process. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah, very, I imagine very, the first was, day or two must have been first four really days excruciating. were the hardest thing I have ever done in my wow. life. Yeah. By far. Yeah. It's amazing that the hardest thing you can do is sit, sit and do still. nothing. Yeah. In a while. <laughs> it's ironic. Do you do you get to sit still ever? I do get to sit still every day. Yeah. So I have a meditation practice that uh that's about four years now, I think. Um, and it's been an interesting journey in itself. Um, I took a great deal of pride and I wrote a blog post about day four hundred and sixty seven, I think it was. Maybe it was four sixty three. I thought you were gonna something. say day four and I was like, Oh no, that's no, no. day four day four it was still incredibly interesting and new and fresh, but I I used an app 
called Headspace to introduce mm-hmm. me to a few different practices. And it's, I still use it, and it's still really, really good and helpful. Um, but one of the things that it does in Headspace is actually track how many days in a row you meditate. So it's like gamified meditation, which is interesting, weird maybe, entertaining. But for me, it was a hook, right? It was super helpful because it just reminded me that, yeah, okay, it's another day, it's another day, it's another day. And then I got to um, December 1st, I think it was 2017, and it was a crazy day. I just had a full schedule. I had a breakfast meeting, which I try not to do, but this one I had to have, and it went right through to a dinner meeting, and I lay down in bed and fell straight asleep at, that night and realized on the morning of December 2nd that, I, oh, no, I'd broken my 467-day streak. And it was interesting for me for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, it helped me realize that um, a habit is not a practice. These are different things. So I had habituated sitting still for 10 or 20 minutes a day, but I wasn't actually practicing meditation. What's right? the difference there? So the difference for me is a, is a question of consciousness. Am I doing this because I need to take 10 minutes and just kind of chill? Or am I doing this because I'm trying to deepen an understanding of myself and invest that 10 or 20 minutes in a closer examination of who I am and who I want to be and how I want to be on mm. any given day? That's really and interesting. it was super interesting to me. I always look for the serendipities and the coincidences that that happened on December 1st because for about seven or eight years, I've had this practice of using December as a month of reflection. Um, so I try to come into the new year with new intentions, not necessarily, what do you call it when you change things on January 1st? Resolutions. I don't necessarily make resolutions, but I try to step into a year with fresh intentions. And I develop those through the month of December when there's lots of love and there's lots of family and there's some time. So that that habit was broken on December 1st was just an interesting serendipitous shift for me. Wow. Um, and now I maybe I don't use Headspace every day. Uh, maybe I don't meditate every day, but my intention is to meditate daily. My typical day starts with 20-minute sit. So it's not a long time, but it's enough to actually get some depth and actually get something from the practice. And it's become like utterly invaluable in my life. I feel like I'm I'm a better human being when on the days when I get that time to sit and just be in practice, understand how I'm showing up today, understand what's going to go well for me today, what's not based on how I'm feeling, what's going on around me, how well did I sleep, right? And just step really purposefully into the day. Yeah, it's such a huge difference. Yeah. If you're doing it fairly regularly, I also find that I try to be every day too, but you know, sometimes things shift and I'm traveling or whatever. But I find if I've been doing it really consistently, missing a day, you, you almost get some wash over from, from the practice as well. Yeah. So it's nice that way. But it is. But I also really miss it. Me too. Right? If I miss a day, I really miss it. Do you do it first thing when you wake up or? Second thing. I grab a coffee. I still, I cannot break the coffee habit. Yeah. I'm not sure I want to. I actually like the ritual of going down, making a coffee. And then I come back to bed and I actually sit in bed. Nice. Um, and it's perfect. I sip half the coffee, put it on the nightstand, and then I'll sit in bed for 20 minutes. Nice. Yeah. Works well for me. I. Uh, it strikes me, you do a lot of writing and you're you do a lot of strategy work which is very thoughtful you're doing you speak a lot you're in front of uh, people a lot talking and thinking about big ideas so um you must also find time just to process like just for deep thinking like what does that look like for you yeah so i i read a lot 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll read better than 70 books this year, and I'm constantly reading a bunch of different periodical publications and news. So I absorb a boatload of information. Um, but for me, it's, uh, it's time in nature gives me the space to process all that I'm learning and start to see the patterns and put patterns together. Um, so I like all winter long, I'm hiking, I mountain bike all year long. Um, it's always out in the woods. It's often solitary, like more frequently that I go for a mountain bike ride solo and just give myself time to think when my heart's racing and I'm climbing up a steep hill, um, or just walking, just hiking in the woods again, often solo. Yeah. Um, so that's a big piece of processing time for me. The other thing, though, is just it, like shifting my life and the way that I'm working to create space for that, um, those conversations, whether they're inside me, a conversation I'm having with myself or with a group of people. Um, I think I got to the end of 2016 and was um, quite tired at work and flirting with the notion of just changing career. I've been an entrepreneur since 2002, 14 years seems like a pretty good run. Maybe 2017 would be my 15th. That's a nice round number. So I gave myself the, I did myself the favor of using 2017 to think about what the next chapter ought to be. And I worked with two different coaches. Uh, I did a ton of reading, lots and lots of reflection time. And I came to the conclusion uh, actually right at the end of the year during that reflective December in 2017. Um, that actually the piece that I love the most and I think the piece that people value me for um, is an ability to sit in what I've come to call a juicy generative conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, there was a sense of purpose that came out of that 2017 experience um, that I'm here to host juicy generative conversations in service to life. And that reshaped my perspective on the business that I'm in. Like as a consultant, a lot of what I do is create space for the right conversation in an organization. And that conversation might be about how the leader is leading. It might be about how the leadership team is managing. It might be about strategy writ large. Um, So my job is just to host a really healthy conversation about what's best for the organization. And then the piece where in service to life comes in is the focus on the kinds of organizations that we work with. Like half of our clients are nonprofits. They're very purposefully working to improve the communities that they serve. And then the other half are businesses that have a social purpose or a social intent. Um, So it kind of refreshed and reinvigorated my sense of the value in consulting and how I can show up in it in a way that serves me a lot better, Mm -hmm. that allows me to be the philosopher, um, but that also serves clients and that clients appreciate me for. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like after a lot of thinking and probably thinking about radical shifts in action, in what your actions were and what you were doing, it was actually a perspective yeah. shift. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, shift in attitude, shift in perspective, just looking at the same patterns in a new way. It's so fascinating how those things unfold. If you can just give yourself space to look afresh at a situation. Yeah. And we, when you actually give yourself the space to do that, right? I love that yeah. you get out in nature. That's a huge thing for me too. The last few years since I moved to Bowen Island have been a, a real game changer in my depth of thought. And and so a lot of times some of my team will be around and I, I'll step into a meeting with no prep, quote, right. qu- you know, air quotes. But the prep has been happening for weeks right? without even trying. It's just been percolating there. It's, 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 it's the reason why I knew you could step into some of the stuff that I want to ask you today right. without you needing to write out notes and think about it because you do enough introspective, you, you create enough space that your brain has processed all, yeah. you know, process these things. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and the lovely yeah. opportunity here, of course, is just to talk about them. Right? Yeah. There's lots of processing going on all the time, and I write about them a lot. Like I blog pretty regularly and try to publish a lot of that content. But to sit and have a juicy conversation about it is like, that's lovely. Yeah, it is. What a great opportunity. I know. It's honestly, uh, starting this podcast was pretty selfish. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> I just perfect. wanted to sit with people I love talking to and talk about the most interesting things possible, yeah. right? It's pretty good. It's awesome. Well played. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Interesting. So I also just love what you just said there about being in service to life. Um, I've been reading a lot of mysticism and Mm. various stuff. And there's an Indian mystic who basically actually had me throw out my purpose statement. I had written a personal purpose statement. And he he convinced me, not directly, but his, his speaking convinced me to throw it out because he said, at the end of the day, if you think you have some special purpose on this planet, that's just your ego talking. All our job is, is to be in service of life and being generative to life. Beautiful. And it sounds like you're, like, I know that that's what you do. I mean, you're across the board working in all these interesting spaces doing that. Yep. Has that always been the case for you in your working life that you've been in, in social impact even before we were calling it that? That's interesting. So, uh, you know, as you ask the question, I think back to where my career started and, um, and this, yes, my work has always been in service, but no, it has not always been in service of social impact. Mm -hmm. Um, so I started my career in retail, like lots of people do, um, it seems like half my friends went and worked in restaurants and the other half went and worked in retail stores and I followed the retail store path. I was super interested in, interested in bicycles. I worked in bike shops for 10 years, put myself through university, managed a couple of multi-million dollar bike shops, loved every minute of it. But uh, I think what made me a great salesperson during those years and probably a good manager, not a great one in those years, was... Um, a commitment to just serving the people that I was with. Yeah, the relationship right? side the of relationships, it. relationships, totally. Mm-hmm. And then I switched into, I finished university and then switched into the advertising business. And funnily enough, this building where we're having this conversation was the only the second office for the first agency I worked for. Wow. So we started a few blocks away from here and then we moved into this building in, I think it was 1999. And they were super excited to move into this gorgeous new space. And then a year later, that agency got bought. So they moved out of this space within 12 months. Like It might not have been more than eight or nine months that we were in here. But it was pretty neat walking in here and just reflecting back on that. And in that work, it was very much in service to clients. And the clients for them were lots of retailers, which is where the fit came, sort of stepping in from the bike shop, and lots of restaurateurs. And then the craziness of the dot-com boom happened. And... We rode a little bit of that craziness. That was like 2000, 2001, those those early years of 2000, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think the real height of it was 99, 2000. Mm -hmm. And then it started to taper in early 2001. um, And it really came to a crashing conclusion when uh, when New York was attacked at the end of, in September 2001. Um, And it was a super interesting ride because the, the system we were in, right? The, the context of business wasn't in service at that point. It was all very, very excited about the land grab of like, I'm going to make my millions off a cool.com domain name. Um, and customer service got forgotten in exchange for let's come up with a razzmatazz business model. that's going to take advantage of this new internet thing. It's going to be great. We're going to make our millions and then we're going to retire. 
So that overwhelmed the conversation of service at a societal level. And I was caught up in it. Like I was just as excited as everybody else was, thought we were going to make an absolute fortune. And then the crash hit. And boy, was that a correction on attitude. That changed really, really fast. Um, and then in spring of 2002, um, a business partner and I started uh, a company that was focused on values-based branding. Um, and we came to that because our experience during the dot-com boom had been pretty values-less. It was really about chasing the almighty dollar and getting there as fast as we could. Um, so our our rejection of that and our reaction to that in early '02 was, well, wonder what it'd be like if we built a company and we helped other people build companies that were really anchored in values. So they weren't anchored in a domain name. They weren't anchored in a particular product or technology. They weren't anchored in a particular life cycle or even a particular customer or audience base, but they were anchored in the values that brought the founding team together. They were more anchored in the how they would work than the what they would do. And at that moment in time, that was inspiring thinking for a lot of people. So we built some really rudimentary intellectual property around how you talk about values and how you articulate values. And we kind of went to market saying that we'd build brands based on values and people loved it. Like we really didn't look back for the first five years of that business. It went crazy. Wow. And it was very much in service to the people who were leading the company. It was very much about the relationships between company leaders. But at that point, we were pretty agnostic about which industry we worked in. So we worked absolutely across the board. We had technology clients. We had mining clients. We had international NGOs. We had all sorts, all sorts of clients. And then in 07, we made another shift. And it was at that point that I got really interested in social purpose business and nonprofit social enterprise. Uh, and more work in the nonprofit space. 2007, that was then? 2007 was when we made that shift. Yeah, yeah, so you were a couple of years ahead of me. I remember coming to Hollyhock for the first time, and you'd probably been there a few times before me. I don't know when you started going. I think I went to Web of Change because right. I literally had a, my first agency was, we, did, we didn't have all corporate clients, but we also didn't have a mandate. I'll say that. Right. And uh, I was finding myself giving all of my time to our pro bono very small community pro bono projects. Yep. Like I spend an enormous amount of my time on those. And I realized, oh, that's where the juice is for me. How do I do that? Right. And I remember talking to friends who owned other design agencies and stuff around town. And they said, what, you want to work with nonprofits or what? And I didn't have any language. Like I, I really didn't, Neither I had never did heard I. of a social enterprise at that time. I hadn't heard of those things yet or any of that. And I remember he hearing or seeing a, a tweet from Chris Krug Shout out to Chris Krug yep. out there um, doing his thing in the world. But, um, and he said, come to Web of Change. And I thought, I'm in web and I'm changing. Like, I'll go to this thing. And it was really that community. And then SVI, I think the year after, right, where I first thought, oh, there's people talking about this. This is a thing. Social impact and social enterprise and social ventures. These are things. And I, I, did, I didn't know if that's the, were the early days of that becoming a real thing or if, I just was getting to the party late or? I still don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know if I was getting to a party late or if it was really in its early essence at that point. Right. But it's really similar timing. So my first social venture institute was 2009. So between 07 and 09, when I had a similar experience to you, we had one nonprofit client that we agreed to serve pro bono because a friend asked and they needed it. And it was totally fascinating. Like here's an organization that, it has to bring revenues in to keep the lights on 
So they, they have to make money like any organization does. And for them, it's fundraising rather than selling things because they're a nonprofit. But at the same time, they actually wanted to make an impact for the constituency they served. So they had a second bottom line. Yeah, they have two jobs. That was a social imperative. Mm-hmm. And it's not twice as difficult. It's exponentially more difficult to manage both of those bottom lines. And that was fascinating to me. Totally. That made it way more interesting. 100%. I, I didn't want to go back and just work for financially driven, exclusively financially driven businesses anymore. I wanted to work with the complicated guys. Yeah. No, it's, it's true. I think we're probably similar in that we chase the juiciest problems, which isn't always the best financial choice for us, but it is the most, from a from a life satisfaction and, and enjoyment of the moment, it's pretty exciting. Yeah. And um, it always struck me that what we do in the nonprofit and the social sector is exponentially harder like the problems are harder and it pays less, but it's a lot more rewarding. Yeah. <laughs> like I always think Way more well, we should be, you know, we, you know, our agencies, I mean, I don't know about yours, but you know, I think Bright Web probably charges about 70% about what a corporate, a true corporate agency might charge. Right. And I always think, man, we should be charging 130% because it's way harder work. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody, right. and the stakes are way higher. Yeah. And there's a lot more people's lives at stake and absolutely true. really important things at stake. Yeah. yeah. Great. So I'm increasing my rates. Thanks for the tip. Yeah, you should. Yeah. Go from, <laughs> just bump it up 50%. See yeah. if that, see how that goes. But um, we had an interesting yeah. trip between 07 and 09. And so 07, I just I made the decision that we were going to shift the entire client portfolio into, uh, at the time I was calling it nonprofits, but it very quickly evolved to an understanding. It was more about social purpose because mm-hmm. lots of them were businesses. Um, but then 2008, the market crash happened. And that was awful. So we were really aggressively moving our client portfolio. Like we'd made this strategic decision that if we were going to show up authentically in the nonprofit world, we couldn't be working with some companies, particularly because some of them were companies that our new clients were agitating against. So we resigned a few accounts. We actually quit a few major clients so that we could make space for the new client, the profile that we were going after. And then the market tanked and nobody was making decisions. So our little firm at that point, which was called Octopus, I think it went from, I don't know what it was, 10 or 12 people, but it went down to two. And then I finally had to let my last colleague go, and I was selling the furniture out of the office to to pay for my obligations. Um, so the, that market dip in 08, the Great Recession, it was not just a dip, right? It was mm-hmm. calamitous for mm-hmm. a lot of people. It was a lot worse for lots of people than it was for me. Um, but I came into early 09 working from my kitchen table again at home, um, and really struggling. And the way that I came back was super serve clients, like straight back to service. So get hired for one thing, do three things, just totally over deliver. But even then I wasn't getting enough clients to really think about resuscitating the business. And then September, 2009, I went to Social Venture Institute for the first time. And I'd thought about going in 08, but it was just in the thick of the calamity. And there was just no way I was leaving town and going to a conference. So I finally went in September 09. And I went with one intention and one question. And my intention was just to show up generously. If people wanted to learn whatever I had to offer at that point to pick my brain, I would just sit down and make time and space and just share whatever I could. So my intention was just to be generous. My question was, should I just close the business? Like, should I just wrap up this part of my career and go get a job, do the next thing. 
And SVI gave me the answer because within about a week or 10 days of leaving that first SVI, I had four new clients that were all in this sweet space of wow. social impact. So I've said it before. I'll say it again on record, on tape. SVI saved my business in 2009. SVI founded my business like uh, into, like from a philosophy perspective. It, it gave me the language and the positioning and the community i'd say the community is probably right. the biggest thing people like yourself yeah. and a bunch of others that said oh there's wind in my sail here there's a whole bunch of people thinking this way i'm not crazy you can survive and and yes it, it brought some clients but i think the biggest thing it brought me was community yeah before that i i think that was actually when i started finally i was i was kind of a little young then i was drinking a lot those first couple of years i was there it was a yeah. bit of a party time but um even even though I don't know that I knew how to show up super intentionally, I just I know that that really set the tone for me for the next decade of my life, and also taught me that community is so important. Doesn't matter how hard you're working, if you're working alone, it's really hard to make anything happen. It is. Yeah, yeah. You've been huge on community. Like I watch you. You're really impressive that way. You're now you're now the chair of the board for Hollyhock. Yep. A decade later. Um, you also just strike me that you are in community and leading community and and supporting community all the time. Like a huge amount of your time goes into that. What? Um, how do you think about community and 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 its role for you in your life? Yeah, it's a great. Well, first off, I appreciate the reflection. It's a, it's important to me, right? Um, it started as um, gratitude. It started as giving back, right? So after that 2009 experience, I returned to SVI in 2010 with a sponsor's check. Um, and it was small. It was a really small amount, but it was what I could afford to give. And it was meaningful from my point of view at, at that point. Um, but it was really just gratitude, but giving back into a community that had by then saved my business, like I say. Right? It was huge service to me. Keeping in mind, this is 2009. At this point, I've got a five-year-old and a nine-year-old at home. Um, so navigating all of this hardship in the business when I had really young kids and all of the expenses that you're learning about as you start to build a family. Uh, so it was a, a huge thing for me that that 2009 event shifted things so much. So the community piece started as, as giving back. Um, and then the more I found, the more I found that if I, I give, I get more back and it's not a transactional thing. It's not a direct exchange. Um, but showing up generously and providing into community, whether that community is a family or an organization or you know a, a community as we typically think of it as a local group or a community of practice across an industry, I find the more generous you are, the more that community pays you back. Um, so there's a gratitude piece, there's there's sort of a selfish exchange piece. If I invest in this, it'll pay me back. Um, but now it's different. Now it's, um, I don't know, it's escalated above those things. This is how I want to be. This is who I want to be. This is how I think good lives get lived is by showing up in service to the people around us. Mm -hmm. um, and if that's a transactional thing, like writing a sponsor's check, then so be it. But if it's about just meeting somebody when they're down or giving a hand when somebody needs a bit of help, um, or just speaking out for what's right and using the authority and the voice that I have to say something that's going to change the course of life for somebody else, that's, that's a privilege that it's a privilege and it's a responsibility that I kind of take seriously. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure where all of that comes from, but that's 
that's just how I see life in community. We all have a role to play. Um, and if each of us chooses not to play that role, then that's the end of community, isn't it? Like there's, there's nothing left anymore if we all step out of the game. But if we all lean into the game, if we really step in and step up and give generously to building our communities together, well, that's what makes everything in life work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. One of the things that I've always been grateful for in our relationship is you and I have had similar businesses and we've a lot of our conversations have been at key moments for either of us, one of us or both of us sometimes when it just overlaps where we're either way down in the trenches trying to survive or we're having a great you know, quarter or a year or whatever. But the sense of community and being able to share that with another human and be able to expose yourself in that way and get that, just be able to say it out loud sometimes is, is, is enormous. So I, I'm grateful for that for you. I'm really grateful for that. And and the other piece of that that's totally counterintuitive to a lot of my friends is just how transparent we've been with one another's businesses. Right. Right. I mean, we've bid on the same pieces of work occasionally. Yeah. But I don't see you as a competitor by any stretch. I like you're a collaborator. You're a you know a partner in changing the way the world does business. Mm-hmm. We're friends. I'm super comfortable, completely being open about what's going on in the business and what's going on in me as a leader. Um, and what a way better way to work that is than sort of being worried about losing my IP or losing control or. A hundred percent. I think that's one thing that when you get into these communities, when you into more social impact realms, not all the time, but you start to get a more human experience wherever you go, where I I talk to some of my friends in other industries and it's way more cutthroat and you would never talk to a competitor. And I've always had that perspective, not just with yourself, but I just, I I think there's lots of work out there. And if, and if you're the right fit for someone, if we're bidding on the same thing, they're going to pick you, then that made sense for them. Right. Right. Like we're not in any way, but more so it's like, do I always want to be watching my back and trying to stab the other guy to get the job? And, and, and there's a lot of that in the business world that I think, I at least think I've been really shielded from just staying in this social impact lane where it's a much more human experience. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that too. Me too. And it's, it's really interesting how that is. Um, I mean, it brings us back to a sort of a point of philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the way America does business is largely in celebration of the individual entrepreneur and it's competitive and there's a scarcity mentality in the way that people do business so that they have to have a bigger piece of the pie. Whereas if you look at places like Bologna in Italy, where the the typical business is a cooperative, it's cooperatively owned by community members and their role is actually to make the pie bigger. Right. Right. You go to different places and they think about competition in different ways. Right. There, there's a lot more collaboration and cooperation, and that's the spirit of success. You look at indigenous communities here where success is wealth is how much you're able to give away, how much you're able to contribute back into community. It's not about how much you can keep and and build up. Um, So I think these these different perspectives on what a healthy economy and what healthy business looks like. there are many different perspectives on what that means. And some of them just seem to be societally more healthy than others. Yeah, absolutely. It strikes me that we're now coming into an era where we are basically going to have to make some pretty clear choices about these business models and about how we approach all this stuff. Um, Because the way we're doing it is not working out super well for us. No, it's not. No. And we've, we've been ignoring all of the external costs of the way that we do business for too long. Um, 
one of the things that we've been working on a lot is um, well-being economics. And this is predicated on the notion that if the central metric of our economic success is gross domestic product, and if we believe that GDP is only successful if it grows every year, then we're betting on our ability to grow an economy in a closed and finite system. So we can't keep growing something inside a system that's closed and finite. And the closed and finite system, of course, is the planet. Yeah. Um, we can't keep growing economies and ignore the cost to the planet. And that's what we've been doing, and that's why we're now in a climate emergency. Um, what we can do, though, is shift what we put at the center of our thinking around economics. And what if we put well-being at the center of economics? Right? There's a huge international movement towards well-being economics, and it is even influencing governments. So New Zealand this year passed its first well-being-based budget, and it looks entirely different than a GDP-based budget. Would I didn't look. know that. Interesting. Massive investments in social welfare, in supports for uh, women, in supports for youth, uh, many supports for the disadvantaged. And it's all about uplifting the collective well-being of New Zealanders. Right. And the Prime Minister of Iceland is looking at the same thing. The Prime Minister of Scotland is looking at the same thing. No small coincidence, perhaps, that all three of those leaders are women. Um, but there's also a big move to um, how businesses can operate from a well-being perspective. Uh, and there's a movement towards what a well-being citizen looks like. Right? Yeah. What's it like to put well-being at the center of your life and your lifestyle rather than just pursuing the almighty buck? Yep. Super interesting work and a, a real shift in core thinking about what a healthy economy looks like. Really valuable work. How do you think the next decade is going to play out along those lines? Do you have do you have do you have a vision or ideas? Of course it could go a lot of ways, but there's a great quote that I heard at a conference last week. My friend Mark Lesser said, uh, Wendell Berry said, be joyful though you've considered all the facts. Mm -hmm. and I think if we look at the facts of economics, if we look at the facts of climate change, um, I think it was just yesterday, IPCC released another report saying we're heading for three and a half, four degrees Celsius temperature increase globally by 2100. Just unpack what that means real quick, like in a simple... Average global temperature mm -hmm. will increase by three and a half degrees between now and the end of the century. All the best models say that more than a degree or a degree and a half of temperature rise will result in catastrophic climate consequences. Mm -hmm. And when I say catastrophic, I mean the kinds of climate consequences that will disrupt the way societies operate. Um the deeper you read into the data, the deeper you understand what we're really talking about when we're talking about two and a half, three and a half degree temperature rise, the more terrified you'll be. Mm -hmm. They're horrifying pictures, horrifying stories. And we're already feeling the effects. I mean, some of the storms that whistled around our house last night are not storms that we would have felt here 20 years ago. Um, and yes, that's just one windstorm on one evening in one city. Um, but the flooding in uh, Asia right now is astounding. More and more of these major and catastrophic weather events are happening all the time. Massive populations are migrating largely as a result of climate implications. Um, so if that's the future that we're facing, and those are the terrifying facts, how do we remain joyful and optimistic and work towards solutions in the face of that sort of thing? And I, I think that's what leadership needs to look like in the next decade. Because mm. uh, we've been told very clearly by thousands and thousands of scientists that we've got a very small handful of years to turn this around. Yeah, like we're probably less than a decade now to turn this around and save society. 
And there are many folks out there that hear save society and kind of roll their eyes. It can't possibly be that bad. And I was one of those guys three or four years ago. Uh, but the more I've learned, the more I've read, the more real it starts to feel and the more scared that I am about what the future could look like for myself, for our kids, uh, for our communities. Um, but there are also lots of people working on some really, really smart solutions, right? We've got the answers. Um, we've got the technology. We've solved for massive problems like this before. Never quite the same, but we've solved for massive problems before. Um, and I think staying positive, staying joyful, looking for the collaborations is the answer to help implement those solutions and make sure that we avoid the worst of climate change. Yeah, I like that a lot. I mean, it strikes me that um, we need to stay really empathetic, really open, really loving to one another so that we can have the conversations we need to have. We need to get tighter and closer and more human with one another so that we can actually get after this stuff. Absolutely. It's interesting that you say, um, what did you just say, save the society? Mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot about the word apocalypse that keeps coming up for me in that the the original Greek meaning of the word, it's not the biblical sense, but the apocalypse is coming into a new time that there was no way of knowing what that time would be. Like we are we are moving into a completely new era of society and civilization. We just some people don't don't know it yet. Some people are I, I kind of think about it as some people are clutching on for dear life because they see it happening and they don't want it to. Some of us are post-apocalyptic working on the future and in the future, looking back going, how do we get how do we pull as many people through this as possible? And others are just ignoring, don't don't know that any of this is happening yet. It's not a linear process for all of us. I didn't know that derivation of the word. That's really cool. Yeah, and I wish I knew the exact words, but you should mm -hmm. look. The, the Greek definition, the original word apocalypse, is that's exactly what it is. So it strikes me that we are in an apocalypse. And um, I like the word too because it jars people a little bit. Yeah. But then when you say, well, actually, this is just the becoming of something unknown. And um, and that to me is what's happening. So in terms of saving society, maybe we're not saving society. We're rebuilding a new society. And there is going to be, I think I think the thing to acknowledge is there's going to be tremendous damage and there's going to be tremendous hardship for a lot of people. There is. So, um, yeah, how do we stay rooted in, 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 in value and, and in love and in joy through all of that? Because I guess what I also you see in the world is where where from our perspective, from our Western perspective, people have the least. They have a tremendous amount of joy, and where we have the most, we have the least amount of joy. We have the most suicide. We have the most depression. All of those things. White males are the most likely to commit suicide, like <laughs> in in our society. So, and we've had it pretty good um, comparatively. So it's interesting that. Uh, yeah, that 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 joy is it does not need to be um, predicated on on certain um, wealth or having things. Right. That there's other like joy actually comes from community. It comes from meaning. It comes from purpose. And hopefully, we can maintain some of that uh, as yeah. we move through the next decade. I think we will. I'm like a boundless optimist. Totally. I see the good in everyone. Yeah. Right? Even the big companies that we love to vilify, yeah, they're broken systems, but they're filled with good people. Well, yeah, I think I think I think all the there's so many people inside these systems that we That's were talking right. about this earlier that want to do the right thing. They're just in a system that doesn't allow them to, right? Right. Like that's why you know some people want to 
take a stab at, at B Corp, but I think it's a first good attempt at saying, hey, here's a new model so the board of these companies don't need to vote in the shareholder's interest purely, right? They right. can vote for they other things besides shareholder values, including right? the environment. And we don't have to fire the CEO if he makes or she makes a move that cuts our profit by 2% in order to do the right thing, right? right? So I think those systems need to break apart, which again, to me, is the apocalypse, <laughs> right. is, is these financial models breaking and see how quickly we can be um, smart and build new things. And I think, to your point, we have the tools, we have all sorts of intelligence. There's all sorts of models out there. All sorts so of models, people of building all sorts of things. They just need the fertile soil to do it in. And maybe that's in the, I don't know, the rubble of some of these companies. Yeah, I'm sure it is. And I think it, we also need the collective imagination to do it, right? Yeah. So the stories that we tell, the entrepreneurs that we celebrate, the businesses that we reward, the businesses that we choose to buy from, all of these contribute to the storytelling and the embracing of a narrative that is very much about a new and next economy and maybe a new and next society. Um, the change is underway. There's no denying it. Um, we're seeing grassroots movements around the world that are all bubbling up towards the same well-being kind of thinking. Um, and they're starting to connect, right? Just as these little ideas percolate up in one city, they connect with idea makers in another city. So the narrative is starting to build and the momentum is starting to build, which gives me a ton of hope. It's mm. pretty exciting. Yeah, that is cool. How do you, um, what role do you think, uh, pick a word, but um, spirituality or religion or connecting into, I, I, what I'm getting at is connecting into something greater than yourself what role does that play in all of this? And and do you consider yourself spiritual at all, or is there, or or are you? I don't know if you're religious or not in a traditional sense. Or yeah, it's interesting. So I studied philosophy and political science, and I spent quite a bit of time studying the philosophy of religions um, to explore whether I was in fact an atheist. Mm. And I finished that course of study and decided, yeah, I am in fact an atheist. Um, Can you just define atheist? Atheist, is somebody that doesn't believe in a higher being doesn't believe in a god doesn't believe in gods um meaning like an it, like a like a individual a creator. god yeah. creator okay yeah. that's what an atheist is okay um now that's whatever 20 odd years ago when i finished university and i haven't taken the same course of study again since to really reexamine that belief um i think as i sit here right now i'm actually less attached to whether i believe that or not um, I don't feel like there's any way of knowing. So for me, that means there's not a whole lot of point in exploring it, um, which is funny because that sounds counter to, I think, the growing spirituality that I am experiencing. But for me, that spirituality largely comes from an observation of the interconnectedness of it all. Um, you know, it's funny. So we had this crazy windstorm last night. And I'm driving to work and... Um, the power was out at our house because this huge tree had literally fallen on the power line. And by the time I got to that point on the road, the emergency services had been there and they'd cut the tree. But there's still this huge stump lying down. And it's probably, I don't know, it's 30 feet long. as a massive root ball at the end. But looking at the diameter of the tree, it's probably a 300-year-old tree. And I felt really sad for the tree, which is like a curious reaction. 
when I'm just driving the kids to school and work and I'm driving past this tree, but it's like a crazy storm last night and it's knocked this tree down, but the tree has stood there for probably 300 years. 300 years predates Canada. Like Canada is 151 years old. 300 years, it was probably surrounded by old growth and it's doubtful that any indigenous community ever bumped into that tree way up on a hillside somewhere in those years in a dense forest. So for the first, say, 200 years of that tree's life, there was no humanity around it. Um, and then humanity showed up and roads were built and maybe there's a little less local support for that tree and the wind impacted it a bit more and gear goes to year or decade goes to decade and finally a windstorm comes along just strong enough to topple this poor tree. Um, and it's funny, like I just called it a poor tree. Like I'm feeling sorry for this tree that it finally succumbed and fell. And yet I know I'll walk past that tree or that stump five years from now and there'll be new growth shooting out of it. Um, and right now there's probably all sorts of vermin and, and fungus and all sorts of things living in that log than what looks like a dead tree. Um, but there's this incredible dynamic natural system of which I'm a part that's happening in that tree stump. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of Western science has forgotten that humans are actually part of the natural system, right? Mm -hmm. We sort of see ourselves as separate from, uh, even in control of, which is truly absurd. Um, but when we remember that we're actually part of this incredible system that's just been in perfect balance for longer than we've been on the planet, um, where animals like us can evolve and grow and change, um, to look at that and not feel a sense of awe, like a true sense of deep awe at how extraordinarily complex and magical that whole interconnected system is. That's what spirituality feels like for me these days. Yeah. That's a beautiful description of it. Thanks. That really is. I, yeah, I echo, I guess I echo that tremendously. I think, I think more and more I think about the interconnectedness of each human and all life, that we're all one life on this planet yep. and that we're sharing this life in you have your body and I have my body, but we are the same life. Right. Um, we got to do some work a couple of years ago and then again, a bit more recently with Reconciliation Canada, which is a nonprofit that supports reconciliation of the Canadian government with indigenous peoples. It does a lot of community engagement and some really impressive training and learning work around the history of indigenous relations in Canada. Um, and they have a series of values like many organizations do, but the last one is in a, a Coast Salish language, and the word is Namwayut, and it literally means we are all one. Wow. And they, so they have they a single word for that. They invoke that in their meetings. But yeah, it's amazing that they have a word that means we're all one. Yeah, we need a word. Yeah. <laughs> Namwayut. We live in the territory. And so that's really interesting. So I asked you what the role that spirituality plays in addressing these problems, but I think you just described it. When we start to connect in with that interconnectedness, we see things in a whole new perspective. We do. And it suddenly becomes insane to do some of the things that we're currently doing. Yeah. Right? It just becomes so obvious that the damage that we're doing is in violation to ourselves. Yeah. Luckily, the planet will be great. planet's going like, to be Like, life fine. will be great. Human life is is at risk. And hopefully, I think we'll make it through and we'll figure it out. I, I think the next era is a massive shift in consciousness, is just a huge, a complete shift in, in how we relate to ourselves and to everything around us. Yeah. And connecting back in with consciousness. 
Like, I think we're largely unconscious as a society today. Yeah. But it's also happening really fast. There's some really interesting things happening very fast. Back to technology, I I used to think the internet, I think a lot of people thought the internet was going to do that. However, it seems to me that the internet is basically a whole bunch of intellectual ideas. It's like a big brain without a body. Right. And and so what Mm. we're seeing there is an explosion of facts and truth intellectual truth but there's but there is actually no real truth there's a lot of intellectual facts that contradict each other right now yeah so we're seeing all of that the fireworks of that on the internet and it's not actually connecting us on the level we need to go one one big level deeper than that before that before the internet works we need like the body internet yep the body net <laughs> the body net so we're not Something. so we're not just yeah we're not just connecting our intellectual thoughts we're connecting how it fe- what the what knowledge feels like what right. yeah what's the somatic web yeah the somatic web ooh i right. like that that's cool just grab that domain it's interesting too that that um like i i don't I haven't looked of late at what the most trafficked websites are mm-hmm. but surely facebook and amazon are up near the top mm-hmm. commercial enterprises that have capitalized the web which is all fine and good um, uh, no, it's not. You're right. <laughs> but but it is the way the system works It's currently. the way the system's working. It's the way that that whole huge tool set has been used and maybe co-opted. Um, but I also think about organizations like Wikipedia, right, where anybody in the world can share their knowledge through a very organized catalog of, of like a catalog of human knowledge. It's a gigantic encyclopedia available for anyone to read, use, edit, Used for free. Yeah. Is it not the biggest collection of information ever assembled? Makes sense to me. I, I would think it is. I don't know if that's yeah. true. And it's all democratically volunteer, basically. It's all entirely volunteer. It's just goodwill. It's yeah. all goodwill. It's such an incredible example. Yeah. What an extraordinary example of human cooperation, right? 100%. Look at what we can do when we put our minds to it. Yep. And then you mentioned business co-ops coming up and that being a new model of doing business that is working in this system, yet is for the greater good, not just one individual at the top or a a small handful of individuals. These systems are definitely possible. Yeah. We just need to start, you know, more people need to get on board with that. And I think the unfortunate part about Facebook or these things is that people thought that that's what they were going to do, that they were out for to connect people. And unfortunately that's just not their business model. Um, You know, I think that Mark probably actually thought that was pretty cool at one point. I don't think he ever thought too deeply about it. Right. But he was excited by that concept at one point. Yep. So the next the next wave of whatever social is, like people hear me talking negatively about social media a lot. I think it's great to have tools to connect and see what others are up to. That That's not the point. Social media that's actually social would be great. That, you yeah. know, and I think those things are coming too. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You talk about broken systems with good people in them. I've never met Mark Zuckerberg. I don't have friends who are friends with Mark Zuckerberg. But my inclination is to assume people are generally positively intentioned. So he starts building an organization to connect people. Way back in the early days, college, going to connect the students, make it easier to find other students, understand and explore what their interests are. That's a totally good intention. That's brilliant. And then you get caught up in how am I going to pay for this and the profit motive. And then you turn into a publicly traded company and now you're being held to account for quarterly returns. And suddenly you're on a locomotive and what you really wanted to do is just like connect with the people back at the station 
Yeah. And now you're way down a track and completely moving away from the original intention of the organization. Um, and that's a structural problem, right? That he decided to put it in a business structure and turn it into a way to make a living and then turn it into a, a publicly held company. Those are structural problems. They are. I wonder what it would have been like if Facebook had been created as a student co-op right from the get-go. Right. So, right. so a decentralization of power from the very beginning. Yeah. So that young Mark didn't get swept up in the early excitement and fame of it. Right. And didn't get surrounded by very hungry, money-hungry people. And the VC market just eats businesses alive. And then the public market, to me, I don't think you can operate an ethical business in the long term and in the public market. Sure doesn't seem like it anymore. Yeah, I just don't think that's how it works anymore. The system has gotten so aggressive and it's like the system has been gearing itself almost. You know, we talk about AI doing things. I think the public market has been gearing itself for some reason for years to being a pretty nasty place. So that I think that system has to fall altogether before we really shift business. But you're right, that'd be super interesting to see what happened there. And there and there are people trying to do that now, I think. Like they're trying to get a foothold in that space. Yeah. Um, and it'll be interesting what the next version of the internet even looks like, a decentralized internet. So we'll yeah, see all those what it was in. supposed to be from the get-go, right? Yeah. It's so interesting when you look back in the intentions of a lot of these things and where they ended up. Um, I did some training around equity and diversity last year. And one of my key takeaways from a couple of workshops was that um, there are intentions and then there are impacts, right? And too often we we excuse ourselves because we had good intentions, but really we have to take responsibility for the impacts of the decisions that we make, the choices we make, even the things that we say. Right. Um, And I, I appreciate that learning, right? And that it is really, really important to pay attention to the impacts. Um, but I think it's also important to recognize that folks do have good intentions. I think both of those things are equally important. And for me, uh, a lot of the strategy work that we do is about understanding that this was our intention. This is where we thought we were going. And then this series of things happened. And some of them we expected and some of them we didn't expect. And now we need to course correct because the impacts may be good. They may not be good. Um, but we didn't know those impacts as we stepped into this with good intentions. Now that we know the impacts, we have a responsibility to change course mm-hmm. and do things differently. Um, so Zuckerberg still owns enough stock that he can change the course of the business. Jeff Bezos certainly owns enough stock that he can change the course of the business. Uh, so the question is whether that kind of leadership is going to have an enlightened view understand the negative impacts that they're creating and take responsibility for them. And I think you see little hints of it, right? Like it hasn't Instagram taken off the ability to like or unlike a, an image. Yeah. They're trying to do a few things. So there. they're playing with some things on the edge, right? Yeah. And I, I recognize that they don't want to take too many risks and make drastic changes too fast. Um, but they're also people that when they do make a change, it can impact a whole lot of things awfully fast. Right. Um, so probably smart from a business standpoint to test on Instagram and then roll out to Facebook. Um, but I hope they do it fast and I hope they're committed to taking responsibility for the impacts. Mm-hmm. Right. But that sort of decision kind of gives me hope that there's smart people with good intentions still inside those big machines. Right. Yeah, that's, that, it is true. Um, when what you just said strikes me, it's like it's interesting that what you just said, these, it comes down to individuals. I'll just paraphrase, but getting grounded enough in their original intentions or perhaps in their values to then course correct when they've been swept away by the the bigger, the greater group or the 
you know, what right. they've built around them. Um, how do you do that? How do you stay grounded? How do you, yeah, how do you stay grounded in tension when, I mean, we all come up against decisions to a, a big potential client comes along, a big opportunity comes along. You have to figure out what are my values? What is my, my intention here? And, and staying grounded that I think it, when we stay grounded, we make good decisions. Yes. It's, it's when we are out of our body and out of our element in that way that that's when we make those mistakes that we later regret or have to fix. Is there, you know, mm-hmm. how do you so think about that? I had a that? really interesting, like an on-point conversation with my business partner earlier today. He's in London, so we connect each we connect once a week or so in the mornings. And one of the conversations that we had was about uh, how each of us is showing up in our leadership. And he reflected back to me that I show up more consciously, more constructively, probably more powerfully, um, but certainly more usefully when I'm grounded, when I've taken time away, when I'm actually looking after myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of talk of late about self-care and it's kind of easy to roll your eyes at the turn of phrase because there's something so so soft and fluffy and kind of woo-woo about it. Um, but if we're not looking after ourselves, how are we going to show up for family or colleagues? And if we're not showing up for family or colleagues, how are we going to be effective in an organizational system? So it really does come back to how are we looking after ourselves? Are we getting enough sleep? Are we getting enough time out? Are we managing our workload in a way that actually gives us the time and space and energy to think through the decisions that we make every day and try and anticipate the implications of the decisions that we're making? Or are we really running on autopilot because we've got way too much on our plate and we haven't spent enough time settling down and thinking about what the best course of action is? I think there's lots and lots of people I encounter that really are on autopilot. Yep. Just like trying to make decisions and get stuff off their desks, off their plates, delegate, delegate, get it on my way. And very good intentioned, intelligent people make bad choices in those environments. Right. Or in those mental and or, you know, internal environments. Yeah. I mean, uh, the whole self-care thing, it's when you are under stress, your brain just literally does not function the same, right? We right. just are not as intelligent. And you ground yourself and suddenly you walk into a meeting, you take five minutes before that meeting, just take some deep breaths and sit down and chill out and think about what your intention for that meeting is. Totally different hour. Yeah. So that's a big piece of it for me is just getting exercise, getting sleep, drinking loads of water, right? These simple biological functional things. It's actually very, it's very quite, it's quite simple. I mean, you just basically, um, did an ad for nature of work, but it's really basic stuff. It's just a matter of prioritizing that and building, to your point, practices that make sure that those things happen. Right. Um, so I love that. Um, do you think about legacy in all of this? Like personally, do you have a relationship with the word legacy or the idea of legacy? Yeah, I do think about legacy. Um, for me, a lot of the a lot of my own introspection about legacy has been pretty egoic. Like it's really about, can I get my name in a history book? Will there be a biography about me? Am I going to do something important enough that others will take note? So it's very ego-driven for me. Maybe that's just the age that I'm at. Maybe that'll shift as I get older and hopefully get wiser. Um, but I talk a lot with clients about it. And our clients tend to be people that are older than me. Like I'm nearly 50. I'm 47 now. But a lot of our clients are near retirement age and they're you know they're empty nesters their kids have moved out and they're thinking about how to use their businesses to do something useful or do something good and leave an impact 
And a lot of the conversation starts about succession, like how am I going to exit and make sure that the business is okay? But the motivation beneath that is how are we going to make sure the business is okay? So the business is this vehicle of legacy for them. Um, the same is true with some of the philanthropists that we work with, right? It really is about I have either inherited or I have built this wealth, and I want to see it put to good use. And I want that use to endure beyond my lifetime. Uh, and that might be ego-driven, um, but there's something very generous in it as well. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think as I get older and I see some of these examples, legacy for me is I, can I do something that leaves the world in a better state than it was when I came into it? Um, what's the contribution that I can make? How can I be generous? I mean, maybe it's like a tiny, fractional, super marginal improvement on the state of things over the course of a lifetime. It's a big world. There's a lot of people in it. Um, but I'd like to know that I'm making a contribution, right? That, yeah. that life has been valuable, that I've done something of value. Yeah, I like that. That's a good definition. I've been asking that question because I think a lot about that I guess I've always, I've always wrestled with my ego, and so the legacy often for me feels like, what does it matter if you're dead? You're dead. You're gone. Right. Your body is gone. You're somewhere else, maybe. So, what does it matter if people are talking about you behind your dead body? <laughs> right. But I think what you just described is something much broader than that, which is, can you? It's almost the Boy Scouts model, like leave leave this well it yeah. takes it a step further can we leave what i came into a little bit better yeah and if we're all doing that things are getting a lot better so that's a nice way to think about it yeah it's been a good helpful way to think about work right, right. when i show up in an organization as a consultant or as an advisor can i leave the organization after our assignment having made the organization a little healthier a little better a little stronger right which is a great lens because it zooms you out a bit from the meeting that you're having or the if you're having a tough time with that client for that week well how do i zoom out from here and see the bigger picture of what i'm trying to do with yeah. this organization yeah and often it's like the client invites us in because they want some particular piece of work done and when we zoom out it's that's useful but it's not actually what they need yeah right and just to be able to say you know what if we shifted some resources over here and did this piece instead the organization's going to be healthier and you're going to be better off as a result um a conversation that you couldn't have if you weren't looking at the whole system and trying to figure out how to leave it better, right? Mm -hmm. And what is um, what would you describe as your role or responsibility in this life? That's an interesting question. Or use other words if they come to mind. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is um, this piece that I've talked about, about a sense of purpose. Right to host juicy and generative conversations in service to life. I feel like I'm perfectly built for that. There's something funny in that, like it puts a smirk on my face because there's something, something that just feels so deeply right about just owning that that's the work I'm here to do. And then I can give all sorts of definition to what a conversation is. Right? It can be a consulting engagement. It can be a chat like we're having now. It could be a really close group dialogue. Um, but it could be or something really big where the conversation is metaphor, right? Like an, an organization can be a conversation. Um, policy advocacy is a conversation. Um, community engagement is a conversation. 
So what exactly that conversation looks like over the course of my career and life is going to shift and change. Mm -hmm. um, but my responsibility is to make sure that they're supportive, juicy, generative. Juicy, I mean, like, let's get to the heart of the matter. Let's, let's not have a light conversation. Let's go deep. Let's really figure out the conversation that wants to happen and have it. And generative is like, what new can we create out of having this conversation? Let's not rehash the same ideas over and over again, although sometimes it's interesting to revisit history and revisit past decisions. But what are we going to do that's different to move forward in a better and healthier way, right? Mm -hmm. That's what generative means to me. How are we going to generate something new? Um, and then in service to life kind of keeps me honest. This is about service. This is about support. This is about collaboration and, and making a positive impact, right? And and that, so that's one piece of it. Um, another piece of it is... Um, I, I'd like to be an example that other people would follow. Um, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a client that, um, really wanted to work with us and it would have been doing some really good work and we declined it because of where the money came from. So we made a really hard decision from a financial standpoint, but from a value standpoint, it was actually a really easy decision. Like it was a five minute conversation. Yeah, no, it's not a fit. Uh, and so we said no to what could have been a really, really lucrative engagement. Um, and just showing people that that's how we make decisions and that's how you can make decisions, that you don't have to follow the almighty dollar all the time. I think that's an example that I'd like to showcase more broadly because we're in the midst of making a similar decision about another opportunity. So we're, we're being tested. How closely are we going to hold to our values? How important is it to show up the way we want to show up versus making a short-term buck? Um, and I think we have a responsibility to holding to that ex example, being that exemplar. Like that's what I aspire to build. I want to build a company that people look at and go, yeah, that's a values driven business because then others will do the same. Right. And that's how you create change, lead the way. Yeah. And, and, and then that can be with the, you know, dozen or two dozen people that work for you, or it can be in a boardroom with five people or 20 people. It, it, it can be with your family. It can be really small and have a big ripple effect, yeah. I think. Um, what do you think hmm. happens when we die? <laughs> Saying that with a big smile on your face, like you know that's the most mischievous question ever asked. It is a mischievous question. I don't, I don't know. It's so, a super some people spend it's a beautiful question. Some, sometimes people spend time thinking about it. Sometimes they don't. Right. And if you don't think about it, then right. you don't have to answer it. But I like, I'm, I'm interested in what, if whether, I often find that people who have thought about legacy a lot which doesn't it sounds like you thought of it a bit they also have thought about death a lot mm -hmm. like do, does does death cross your mind your death it crosses my mind from time to time yeah um it particularly crosses my mind when we lose people that we love right um what happens afterwards i don't know it's the great mystery it's the great mystery i know somebody who is um who is dying of cancer now. He is, um, I, I've never met somebody so at peace with the knowledge that his death is going to come in the next probably couple of years. Wow. So he's not obviously not quite clear on what the timing is, but he knows that it's imminent. Um, and he's so inspiringly and beautifully ready and it's not something that I think we see very often in our culture. Like we like to 
we like to just honor youth, right? We yeah. like to forget about the elderly. Um, we like death to be out of sight and out of mind. Yeah, it's part of why I like to talk about it a bit, like start to start talking about it. It's fundamentally a part of life. Yeah. Like well, the, you, I don't think you can truly live if you don't understand, right. have a relationship with death, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it helps you make good decisions while you're alive, I think. Yeah. Do you have a sense of why this guy that you're talking about might be so at peace? I do. And it's a lot of what we've been talking about. This is somebody who has sat and listened very carefully to what's going on in his inner world for decades. Right? This isn't new work to him. Uh, he's very, very comfortable with where he, at, where he is, where he's at, what his spirit is. Um, and I, I can't imagine encountering somebody that's more ready. And it's like it's really inspiring to be around. There's That's a, powerful. It's very, very powerful. Like just to sit in conversation with him, it's it's magnetic, it's powerful, it's inspiring. Like what a beautiful example. Hmm. So what does it mean to live a good life? Hmm. That is one of my favorite questions. That's like Mine too. Immanuel Kant, Thomas Hobbes, Plato, Aristotle, like you pick them. Every philosopher has asked that question and, and wrestled with the answer. It's the question of a lifetime, right? Uh, I think it's a question that we revisit and revisit and revisit. Yeah, and I think every decade that probably shifts a bit. Probably does. Yeah. Yeah. So for, for me, just asking the question is living a good life. Consciously trying to answer that question is part of the essence of answering it. Like being in the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, love, laughter, accepting that some of it's magic and you'll never figure it out. Support, community, friendship, love. Yeah, I know I said it twice. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening. And you can follow along with my life on Instagram at Steve Rio. For show notes and other info about the podcast, check out natureofwork.co forward slash podcast or find us on Instagram at natureofwork.co. And if you'd like to learn more about how to increase your performance, resilience, and well-being, how to increase the quality of your work, while lowering the stress and anxiety you feel, definitely check out Nature of Work. It's a personal operating system that has transformed my work and my life, not only the quality of my work, but how I feel every day. And with that, I'll leave you. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>